This week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Zach. And this is Matt. And today we will be discussing Diablo Cody's Jennifer's Body, a 2009 film in which Megan Fox far oh my god, Megan Fox stars as the titular Jennifer and Amanda Seyfried stars as her best friend Needy in their pursuit for the attention of a rock band end up at a bar that ends up burning down and the chaos with the chaos Jennifer ends up as a succubus a man eating demon and a seducing demon that Needy must try to contain so I did mention Diablo Cody is the one who wrote it she is also the one that wrote Juno, and this is kind of the film follow-up for her after getting that kind of that, that attention. I think when you know that it's the same person, it's like so obvious, given like the sense of humor and just the style of writing. But this more or less tanked the momentum that she had after Juno. And I think a lot of the conversation we had around this movie is what the movie's intentions were and what Diablo Cody's intentions were and the director's intentions were versus how it was marketed versus how it was received. Uh, so this is actually your first time seeing this movie, right? It was. It was interesting to get your first impressions on it. And you also said that you weren't super aware of how this was marketed at the time of its release, right? No, I was not. I'm interested to hear like what your original impressions were. I, I liked the movie. I thought it was a good movie. Good. <laughs> Diablo, Cody, uh, Diablo Cody is a University of Iowa alumni. Oh, really? Yeah, and um, also I find it interesting that after Jennifer's body, she did continue to like go on and, and do other things because obviously she won the Academy Award for Juno, right? right? That's like huge. One she film BAFTA. doesn't end your career after that. No, one film doesn't end your career. And also she like won everything. And in fact, she immediately went on to win a Tony Award for Jagged Little Pill. Oh, so I didn't know. I think Diablo Cody is doing okay. There is a particular wit to her writing style that is so, so funny Mm -hmm. and so, so sincere in that I think when a lot of people try to write with that level of comedic wit, it comes off really forced Mm. whereas Diablo Cody's doesn't come off as forced it comes off as very natural to the characters and I think that part of that has to do a little bit with having like good actors and actresses which obviously Juno had Jennifer's body actually had yeah and so for this movie to be a horror film which it is a horror film it's a horror comedy the line between the comedy and the horror has to be so delicate as to really not tip the scales too far into either one because if you go to horror the comedy seems trite if you go to comedy the horror seems misplaced And I think that that's why black comedies are so incredibly hard to manufacture. Jennifer's body doesn't just walk that tightrope of horror and comedy. It's 
it's riding a unicycle across it, juggling. Like, <laughs> it's incredibly balanced. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, a fantastic effort. And I'm disappointed that it, it didn't get more recognition. I'm disappointed that I didn't know about it or watch it earlier. I had obviously heard of the movie, but it was one of those things where I guess I never really understood or appreciated the buzz around the movie. So I never took the time to actually go watch it. I was always like, this will be something that I'll get to eventually. And it just so happened that I think you picked it for the podcast. And I said, oh, this will be a good opportunity to watch it. And it's awesome. It's funny that you mentioned that it's like a good horror comedy because Diablo Cody did intend for it originally to be like a dark horror movie. Like she did not intend it to be really much comedy at all. But then you can see in her writing, especially in Juno, it just kind of seeps in. And that's what she said. She's like, I just found like that during like these really tense moments that the comedy just kind of seeps in and like to break that and to balance that. It balances itself out when she goes to write and that kind of like shows her genius and shows her talent. And I think also... Like you mentioned, you got to have good actors to portray that too. And I mean, it's got Megan Fox, who was like the hot thing at the time. She was very at the forefront. And also Amanda Seyfried was like up and coming. So like these were big names at the time. And then you have J.K. Simmons just kind of thrown in there. (laughs) And like he's not a, you know, C-list actor or anything. And I think Megan Fox did such a good job delivering that humor. And she does such a good job with like the range in this. Because some of it is like she kind of has to act spooky and kind of like badass at times. But then immediately break that down into like a like a boob joke and she does such a good job with it this movie really showed that megan fox is an excellent actor Mm -hmm. in this movie in particular her acting is stellar amanda seyfried's acting is always stellar and to have both of them go up against each other in terms of acting typically i think that you always have to worry about again balance if amanda seyfried from an acting standpoint way outshines megan fox then the whole movie just kind of feels like the amanda seyfried show same thing if you're so caught up with megan fox that you kind of forget amanda seyfried the pathos and the plot of the film starts to dissolve but it's you know one of those things where we even have to say like oh megan fox held her own and it's because we've kind of been culturally inculcated into thinking that Megan Fox is just the eye candy that's on Mm -hmm. the screen because of because of what happened to her in Transformers but that's not the truth like she is an actress and she does an excellent excellent job in this movie of pulling on those and I think that it's also nice that in this movie we get to see sort of Megan Fox the actress but we do get to see her as like the good looking character in the film that also falls apart Mm -hmm. we see her not looking so important great she's not full beat makeup wise and she's not perfect she actually has moments where the makeup is gone and she looks like a normal person and she has that self-consciousness that is like so human you don't think of someone like megan fox being that level of self-aware really yeah and then you kind of get to understand that the way that she's portrayed in this and in transformers and in a lot of media in general is very much a veneer that has just kind of been forced mm-hmm. on her a little bit it's exploitative <laughs> yeah it's really exploitative and so i'm i'm excited that she kind of got the opportunity in this movie to break that a little bit you mentioned the balance between megan fox and amanda seyfried like kind of balancing out the roles in this film but it's even more complicated than that because like this film is about empowering women specifically to do with needy's character 
right? She's the, the plain Jane at the beginning, and, you know, it's she's kind of living in Jennifer's shadow. We do see Jennifer kind of start to fall apart. She starts to doubt herself, and Needy is also starting to doubt Jennifer. It, like, it's kind of shown that she worships her, and there's this really interesting dynamic between those characters, and you get this kind of taking over that Needy has, where, like, she literally has to kill her in the end to, like, kind of end her reign, but then she gains some of her powers in the end. She goes from this plain Jane, like, kind of in this abusive relationship to being, like, this strong woman that we see both at the beginning and the end. I think it's also interesting how they start with the end of the movie and you get to see where she ends up and then you get to see her in like, you know, the dork glasses and like that all being said, it's not like she's self-conscious about it. They show Jennifer to be like really image focused on herself and to do with Needy too, but Needy never is like, oh man, I wish I didn't have to wear these dorky glasses or like, oh, I have this like really fluffy looking formal dress. I wish I was wearing something else, but she's not self-conscious, not nearly as much as Jennifer is. Thank God we have a movie where the homely girl doesn't let down the ponytail, take off the glasses, get contacts, put on some full coverage foundation, some eyeliner and some eyeshadow. Needy does not change. Needy doesn't have to adjust in the course of the film. It's really just to do with her personality, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it, it's just it she breaks becomes, that yeah, she becomes more confident and then goes to prison. But, you know, it's part of it. Yeah. It's hard to look at this movie and think that Jennifer is a villain. Even seeing all of the things that she does in the film, she's not a villain. She is, she is first and foremost a victim and she's literally possessed by a succubus. Well, um, okay. So... I kind of disagree here, right? Yeah, okay. she's a victim in that respect. Like, she's literally a murder victim. But also, she's kind of a bully, isn't she? <laughs> to needy. But we don't really get how much of the bullying is unfounded until, like, the end of the movie, I would say. I, I feel like you get a sense of it pretty much right away, because, like, we, we know the characters at play here. We've seen them before. Sure. Okay, so let me rephrase. It's very hard for me to look at this movie and think that Jennifer is a villain because at the forefront, she of course is a murder victim, but she also is more than that. And I think that this this movie is obviously an allegory for assault and what it does to people. Yeah, yeah. She's a victim to, <laughs> kind of in the same way that Megan Fox is, she's a victim to her social image. Mm-hmm. And the way that specifically men treat her, which makes her more vulnerable to disrespect. It is one of those things where Needy, because we are, we kind of see her as looking more homely, her interactions with the band are immediately dismissive. It's like they don't even see her, which also has the unintended consequences of then portraying this story as one where the homely girl is less susceptible to assault. Horrible thing to say, but that I think is the message that this movie is trying to get across by them choosing Jennifer. I think that plays into the exploitative message here. I think we're getting into some of the irony there because like these are like kind of like the central messages and themes, right? Is this, this exploitation image and like the dynamic of the friendship between these two girls that are shown to be different 
sides of the spectrum there. But then we kind of get into what the PR disaster of this movie was in that Fox, not Megan Fox, but the like media company Fox marketed this as like this central kind of thing. And like, yeah, it's called Jennifer's Body, but like there's the joke there. And it's also about Jennifer's body being possessed by a demon, right? I remember at the time, like seeing commercials like with the trailer and it's like just that scene where Megan Fox is like coming out of that lake or whatever and she's like dripping wet and like you know it's like this really exploitative image they're like hey hot girl in movie right you're gonna go see this because you get to ogle Megan Fox right and that kind of marketing as much as we can say sex sells like for a feature length film that is also being marketed to be a horror movie it's a very niche it doesn't <laughs> right it doesn't work like who are you appealing to like 13 year old boys that are absolutely not going to be able to go see an r-rated movie on their own like and it, it's just a really weird thing and the, the marketing for this is was completely counter to the messages at play yeah we do get that content in the film but it's like that's part of the comedy. That's part of like the irony. It's part of the message. It's just a necessary evil. We talked about this with Perfect Blue. You can't make a point about exploitation without doing a little exploiting yourself because you've got to show. You've got to show it. You can't just talk about it. It's not effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, it, it walks a line with how it hit, portrays these characters. Um, does it pass the Bechdel test? Yeah. The Bechdel test is a test by Jennifer Bechdel. Uh, first of all, it, it is a comedy. The whole point of the Bechdel test, I, I do believe that it shows up in Fun Home, which was written by Alison Bechdel, as a way to describe the relationship between characters. In a movie, the, the notes are, if a movie passes the Bechdel test, are at least two women. These women talk to each other. They discuss something other than a man. Yeah. It, that's, it's a joke within the Fun Home universe, too, so... Yes, of course, this passes the Bechdel test. Right, that's most of the movie. In fact, there's kind of a a very interesting lesbian subtext in this movie. Yeah, I think that's also... I want to hear you talk about that as the resonant expert on watching queer people interact. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. That's definitely me, not you. Here's the difference, Zach. I interact with people normally. You watch them through a pair of bushes outside of your home with binoculars. That's true. I think that you have a more, you know, you have a more open and receptive nature to the queer community in the ways that you uh, watch them because you don't view them as people. You view them as birds. Okay, so that scene. So, yeah. So tell me about your interpretations of the queer subtext as the resident horror film queer expert on the podcast (laughs) no as expert as the horror film expert on queer horror in the podcast at least okay yeah sure uh so actually (laughs) leave it all in yeah okay Uh, (laughs) totally (laughs) no so there is a there is actually so i cheated here there is a interview that diablo cody did well she's done lots of interviews about this movie because of its reception and all that and trying to like clear she things won up 21 about it. awards for juno right it's she's highly interviewed but anyways she said that that scene specifically was like really about 
portraying close female like teenage relationships in like a sensual kind of way because like even when you have your best friends that you're always hanging out with in high school it is almost a romantic kind of relationship like you are always with your best friend you're always with these people you spend almost like all day every day with them and you go to school together you're in classes together you talk you know you go home and then you get on the phone with each other and you know talk until the sun rises right that's kind of like what she was getting at she's definitely trying to like portray just the kind of like romantic feelings that can almost sprout out of these close relationships while you're also like kind of coming of age and going through puberty and um, maturing in that way it's like thinking about your friend being close like you can't help but have close kind of feelings for them too so i think that's kind of her explanation of it i tend to agree because she wrote the thing (laughs) but i think there is also this subtext of like i said earlier needy like worshiping jennifer so to get that kind of attention from jennifer is like well i can't not accept this but then eventually she does pull away and she is the one that says you know what what is going on here like so i think that's first step in the direction of her being the one to be in in the more powerful role in that relationship absolutely and it is amanda seafried who breaks it off yeah and i think that that's an interesting moment that she is taking personal power back into the relationship between them or at least she's gaining some power because there is now this aloofness and this danger to Jennifer that I think makes Needy realize that she needs to be more independent of her. For sure. But I think that to have them do this, people would very easily call this queer baiting. Zach, as the resident expert on queer theory on the podcast, would you consider this queer baiting? I don't think that was the intention, but it could definitely be seen as such. Really? No. That's interesting, because I, as the not-expert of queer theory, would say that I don't think that it's queer-baiting. I think that this is a legitimately strong plot point in the film because it marks the turning of the movie. It also, I think, is an interesting idea if we start to kind of look at the film as this longer conceptual idea, which is that at the very end, Amanda Seyfried says, if you are bitten by a demon, you inherit some of its power. What is a kiss but a bite that's not so forceful? <laughs> so I think that it was a little bit of a transference of uh... that energy. Not like literal demonic energy, but I think that that was an opportunity for the film to say Needy has taken on some of the dominant qualities that Jennifer had because they start to swap. Needy becomes more dominant. She kind of becomes the hunter at that point. Yeah, where Jennifer becomes submissive to her own need to feed on people because now she is constantly weak unless she's eating people. Well, and at that point, she's also hunting exclusively people that seem to show interest in Needy, right? So like Colin seemed to like kind of have, he, he was close with Needy. I don't think there is necessarily like feelings there, but she goes after Colin. She kills him and then it's Chip next. Yeah, it totally changes who the film like looks at in in the strong versus the weak light. Because now Jennifer is barely hanging on as long as she's going through. And it's really kind of obsessive towards needy. Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously the name has something to do with that. They call 
Anita needy because she's needy. She needs approval or attention from Jennifer. And then she's not. And it becomes Jennifer who's needy, but in terms of like food and attention from Anita. Right. I struggle with this because the movie's called Jennifer's Body, right? I really feel like this movie's about needy. But at the same time, it's like, well, it's also about Jennifer being as like this catalyst for needy's taking hold of her own destiny, so to say. But I think it's more so about their relationship and how these close female relationships can be both damaging, but also empowering. Mm -hmm. And we see that to the extremes here. It's also interesting. I I think that they kind of like go to set up this lore at the beginning because they said there had been a month between the fire at the bar Mm -hmm. and Jonas dies like the next day. And then there's a month between that and when she goes after Colin. I don't know if that's common like succubus lore is that they like work in moon cycles or if that's like a menstruation reference. I know that's also something Diablo Cody had mentioned. It's like almost anti-tropic in that way. Yeah. Right. And that it's not like she's bleeding. She is getting blood Mm -hmm. with the cycle of the moon and the whole final girl trope right she's kind of undoing that where chip is kind of like the final girl in this but also he dies so it's taking these these tropes kind of throwing upside down but also breaking them at the same time which i think is cool it's just a lot of fun when you've seen so many slasher movies so many of these teenage kind of like scheme movies (laughs) in my opinion yeah they're like exploitative of the teenage slasher seeking genre and then you see something like this and it's refreshing right it's not it's not Mm -hmm. in that way at all yeah we've got another villain that actually has a story to tell i want to talk about through the trees oh the song throughout the movie they repeatedly play through the trees which is the anthem of this band uh the same band that basically sacrificed jennifer for fame and success obviously they're making a satanic pact they're making a deal with the devil what i find so funny is that not knowing what was going to happen i said to you when the band was first playing it this is the most soulless piece of music i've seen in a film to which you said well you better get used to it (laughs) (laughs) and you were right it plays a lot it is just like this drab and offensive kind of song. And I think that's by design. They had to have a repeat throughout because it becomes this anthem. You have to hear it in its entirety at the beginning because it's like kind of a moment. You know, it also like sets off the plot of the movie. Yeah, it's not a great song. And I was saying that I call it soulless, but I they literally, I think, sell their soul yeah. for it. By doing this, which I think is I think is funny. It's a Faustian bargain. I love that there's a Faustian bargain within this that has nothing to do with the Faustian subject. You actually get to see what happens with everybody else, and then we come back to them and see their repercussions. They actually get killed at the end, which is it's just like in an end credits picture scene, which I thought was great. I thought that that's exactly what you want from a movie where they make this because that's another way of subverting the. Tr- trope right it Mm -hmm. subverts the faustian bargain trope somebody else made a deal with the devil now we gotta deal with this also the song sucks they had to write a song that was convincingly real also so uncomfortably inoffensive and in that inoffensiveness it is poor in construction so that 
when they reach this super mega stardom, it's justified <laughs> that it has some kind of deal with the devil behind it. The song is so bad that they couldn't make a deal with the devil and then gain success and fame off of the song. They had to make a deal with the devil so that they could gain fame and success off of a fake story about them <laughs> saving a town. <laughs> right, it's not just a song. Even Satan was just like, this is not good. I'll do what I can. <laughs> like, I guess I'll like make people believe that it is so abhorrently soulless, and I think that that is such a funny representation of the film. Also, how indicative that song is of key moments throughout the film. Mm. When it first happened, it was just like, oh, this is all just foreshadowing, isn't it? And yes, it is. What would you call the genre? They call themselves, because I remember the, the quote is like, oh, like, do you know how hard it is to be an indie rock band these days? Satan is our only hope to become popular. This is what a non-successful band that needs to sell their soul to Satan sounds and looks like. But I also find it really interesting that needy even though she's the one that kills jennifer she kind of like takes on this almost like this responsibility of like oh i gotta my, she's my best friend like she's killing all these boys and killed my boyfriend like i gotta take care of this but also she kind of avenges her by going and killing this band yeah even though she killed jennifer kind of had this hatred for her at the end she still feels this responsibility and like cares enough about her to go and avenge her because jennifer's not the villain she is a victim and the thing that she killed really wasn't jennifer anymore right because it's a it's a well, i think that a succubus possessing you brings out the worst qualities in a person. <laughs> i mean they show that right and it's like they're talking about all the, the people dying in the fire and jennifer is just being like super insensitive and making like these really yeah terrible comments like got over like we we don't really get to know jennifer that well before she transforms but we get this impression from needy then she's like what are you what's wrong with you like this is not yeah. normally how you act well and i think that it's also showing like the the not normal how things act that's a great explanation of what's going on this is not normally how you act paralleled with jennifer's first on-screen kill when they find his body he's being eaten by a deer not normally how we think deer act right right that's weird so there is an unnaturalness to that and and it's like the pecking order has been reversed we don't eat the deer anymore now the deer are eating people they've moved up in the food chain the literal food chain mm -hmm. and it's so funny because while jennifer is moving up in the the literal food chain where she's eating people so she's above humans obviously in terms of the social food chain which is far more relevant and actually mentioned by amanda seafried in the ending sequence jennifer's gone down a lot in the social food chain she's not socially relevant anymore also in the people that she's eating right she goes from like the star football player to colin who is shown to be somewhat popular in his circle of friends mm -hmm. to chip who is just kind of like you know, we don't really know that he has friends. He, we just know that he's dating needy. I just want to talk about Chip as a character because, like, he's my favorite character in this movie. He's the outlet, I think, for Diablo Cody of, like, pointing out all the really stupid things that teenagers think are important. <laughs> he just, like, kind of points out how weird it is that Needy and Jennifer are, like, that close. He just, like, points out a lot of the flaws of teenagers and, like, what the hormones in their brains can, can make them do. I also like the quote, our library has an occult section. Yeah. 
<laughs> this points out like this is actually a, a, a plot hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's funny. What is also great about Chip is that he is susceptible to the same petty, awful shit that everybody else is mm -hmm. because he listens to Jennifer at the end. That's also kind of the power of the succubus though, right? Yeah. Right. They have to seduce before they can feed, but they also kind of have some pull there, if you know what I mean. Like, it's just like they have, they have some powers of seduction there. In the, the more lore based succubus myth, they can take the form. Right. They, they can change their form. So like a lot of times it'll be take the form of your significant other, um, and kind of like trick you yeah but he's still susceptible to it because he also has the whole breakup thing with with needy which i think is a, a significant factor like that's a whole thing right. that people deal with and do and well and that's another instance of needy kind of like taking control she's the one that breaks up with chip she's like we cannot see each other anymore it's like for your safety and he kind of thinks she's losing it you know she's the one that's doing it to protect him and then he kind of yeah he kind of does become susceptible in that point like he does suddenly care so much about the dance which is like always so funny we watched carrie and now we watch this one and like they there's a lot of inspiration from carrie here you can see it it's oh, just so tons. funny in these like in these high school horror movies that the dance is always so important and it's true like this is something that carries to real life very accurately it's like these high school students think that these dances are like so important mm -hmm. and it's like why it's a good movie great, it also has writing. uh chris pratt i also like that his character is completely hey guys inconsequential it's me a mario it's me mario the, the no that's you know. too italian <laughs> that was too the accent you yeah. did <laughs> hey it's me mario hey it's me mario it's like I do like a hey, it's me, Mario, like a Christoph Waltz accent. It's me, it's -a me, Mario, 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 Mario. Okay, we're done. Do you think Mario would be a supporter of Benito Mussolini? <laughs> or do you think he would have been yes. like, <laughs> okay. Mario would have been flying an airplane, throwing fireballs <laughs> during the blitz. And where's Bowser working in this situation? Bowser's on the ground in London. He's trying to keep things together. Is Bowser Winston Churchill? <laughs> They're kind of built in similar ways. They're both kind of like these stocky dudes, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was thinking you were talking about Mario and Bowser. Bowser and Winston Churchill look identical. <laughs> They're the same person. <laughs> slash reptile i don't know what he is but thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of watch no evil this is matt and this is zach and remember ain't no body like jennifer's body because jennifer's body is possessed by a demon Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts, 
You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs. 